The prophet Jacob asks a very interesting question. How far will God go to save his people? What lengths will he go to to try one thing and then another? Will he send a servant or will he send himself? The parable of the vineyard or the parable of God's love or of the olive trees lays out in careful detail how much the Lord tries, works for, and then grieves when things don't work in bringing back his people. Join us today as we talk about the allegory of the olive tree or the allegory of God's love. And we look at the lengths at which God goes to save his people, Israel, and the rest of us in the process. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed here do not constitute official pronouncements of the church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. So welcome to, uh, this is part two of uh, the allegory of God's love that we tend to, to call um, the allegory of the olive tree, which is you're going to find out is is kind of misnamed for a variety of reasons okay so so let's start for just a second we talked last time at length about the fact that this allegory is actually set up in chapter four chapter before because remember every allegory every parable and everything every section of the doctrine and covenants came by way of a question and so we want to know again anybody remember what the question was that prompted the allegory in chapter 5. Uh, he says that those people who rejected uh, Christ, is there any way for them to come back? Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the question was uh, in, in, in 4, because he's going through everything that's going to happen to Israel and you see them finally scattered and Jacob is pretty clear about that. And the question then is, how is it possible? And I love the wording on this. And you, you can almost hear the incredulous sound of his voice. How is it possible that these, Israel, after having rejected the sure foundation, and we think, well, then they're toast. Okay? He said, no. How can they ever build upon it? Will they ever build upon it? How could they do that when they are so far gone? Okay? And along with that, behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. Now, let me expand that out. Let's, let's bring it home just a little bit. Sometimes we look around in our families or we look around in our lives or we look around in the world and we go, how in the world would these guys ever find Jesus? <laughs> how, in these, how in the world would these guys ever be saved? They're just so far. Oh, they're so gone. They're so bad. They're so, my kids are so awful. <laughs> how will they ever be saved? Yeah, so we, we 
we all have a tendency to anticipate that the person that we're considering <laughs> knows what we know. Yes. And they understand it. Oh, <laughs> certainly they do. And, and not, or they are so knuckleheaded that they will never get around. They would never change their mind. They're, they're too far gone. Okay? It, it just How will these idiotic Israelites finally turn around and say, okay, the guy we rejected, oh, it turned out he, we should build our foundation on him. Uh, and he says, well, okay, yeah, I will grant you that this is a mystery. Let me tell you how this works. Okay? So that gets us to Jacob 5. Uh-huh. I think I recorded on here. Indeed. Okay, now. A couple of things we need to know about, uh, about the allegory. Um, he's going to say, um, read the words. If you want to know the mystery, read the words of the prophet Zenos. Um, now, Zenos, again, we don't know exactly when he was, but we know that he's somewhere between Abraham and Isaiah. I know that's a it's only a couple of thousand years. <laughs> but somewhere in between there, the prophet Zenos, uh, back in the day, Hugh Nibley thought he had his, him figured out. And I saw, I saw a talk where he, he figured he knew who Zenos was. And who am I to argue with the great Saint Nibley? But the prophet Zenos, which he spoke of the house of Israel, saying, Hearken, O ye house of Israel, and hear the words of me. A prophet of the Lord. Now, why is that important? Because here's something that I don't know that I'd necessarily completely internalized. For behold, thus saith the Lord. Whose words are the allegory? The Lord's. This is a revelation. A word-for-word revelation. This isn't Zenos saying, let me tell you a parable this, he's saying, as I'm a prophet, I got a revelation, thus saith the Lord. And here comes the parable. Here comes the allegory. Well, that's kind of cool, right? And then there's going to be some interesting things that I think sometimes in our, especially if we're trying to read too fast through the Book of Mormon, we might miss this, okay? Be very careful about this. I will liken thee, O house of Israel, like unto a tame olive tree which a man took and nourished in the olive grove. Now, where is the olive tree? In the vineyard. Are we talking about a grove of olive trees or are we talking about a vineyard? Talking about the world. <laughs> it's, it's a vineyard. And the vineyard in probably is the world. the world, right? So there is a. So keep in mind, there are two things here. There's a vineyard with grapes, and there's an olive tree in the vineyard with grapes, and both of those two. Now that becomes kind of important here, uh, and I've got a. I've got a. Uh, I've got a couple of instances here. So here is. Here is uh, the, the vineyard, and these are wild, most likely these are wild olive trees right here. And I'll, I'll show you why in a second, okay? But the idea that there is tame olive trees nourished in a vineyard, 
uh, one of the ways that we think that we think we know a little bit about Zenus, uh, you, you've been to Israel. Where in all of Israel would you find vineyards and olive trees? Is it in the south? Well, you find them along the plains of Sharon and also the. It's in the north. It's in the north. When you drop down into the Judean desert and you're coming across there, you'll see lots of olive trees, but you won't find vineyards. Because the sweetest vineyards, as we know, have to have, look at the Simi Valley and, and the south of France and stuff like that. There are certain conditions that have to apply to get really good grapes. And that ain't happening in the Judean desert. Where that happens is in the north of Israel in the Galilee and a little bit farther on the north side of the, of the Sea of Galilee because you need to have the rolling hills, you need to have the more moderate temperatures, you need to have the ability, this, this comes into play in just a second, to have the villa, the home up on top of the hill and the vineyards come down the hill because you're trying to get that morning mist and the sweetening thing that happens at the bottom of a hill. That's the north. That's why we're thinking, the thinking is among Book of Mormon scholars is that Zenos is a prophet of northern Israel, not of Judah in the south. We tend to think of Israel and we think of desert and the Jericho Road and, and all those, Masada and the Dead Sea and stuff like that. We keep forgetting you go into the Galilee in the north and you're in Iowa. <laughs> you know, it's just gorgeous, okay? All right, so... There are tame olive trees and they're sitting in a vineyard. Gives you another view of, again, you can see kind of the, the mountains of Israel up here in the north. And then this is a more, probably more cultivated olive tree. The branches get to be bigger. The leaves get to be bigger. No, the difference there versus there, the leaves are broader. They are two different species of olives. That becomes really important in a second. Okay? And which, uh, now, uh, Isaiah is going to tell us that, that a man built a hedge around the, the vineyard out of stones. I think that's kind of cool. But um, All right, so, so why, why is the vineyard important? Let, 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 me, let me throw a scripture at you. And it comes from the Savior when he visits the Nephites. And, and what is he going to tell the Nephites? Well, as he comes down, he says, Arise, come forth, that you may thrust your hands in my side, and also that you may feel the prints of the nail in my hands and in my feet. Why? That ye may know that I am the God of Israel and what? the whole earth. I am their God as well. I am the God of the whole earth. I've been slain for the sins of the world. Okay, now let, let, me, let me come back here then. The owner of this vineyard is going to get a crop of olive trees under, after which he will make olive oil. They will do everything that they do with olives that sustains the economy and olives are the most prominent piece that you can see and they're critical to the economy 
What else is he going to get out of his plot of land? Besides olives. The grapes. The grapes. In fact, he says he trod the... Yes, and, but so isn't it interesting that we are given an analogy, because if we're going to go back and say the vineyard, it makes sense to us, the olive tree is going to be Israel, the moving of the olive trees is Israel, and all that kind of stuff, but it's sitting in a vineyard, and the vineyard is also providing fruit. There's good stuff coming from the vineyard, not just from the olive tree. There is good stuff coming from Israel, but there's also good stuff coming from the world. We have the wonderful words of the Savior and everything. We have the beautiful words of people like Confucius and, and, and all those from the rest of the world also providing fruit. And sometimes we get caught up in the idea that it's only in the Bible and it's only us or it's only Latter-day Saints and everybody else is kind of second class. And he's going, oh, heck no. This is an olive tree and we will focus on the olive tree. And by the way, it's the olive tree that's dying. How's the vineyard doing? <laughs> vineyard appears to... We don't have any record of the vineyard decaying or having problems. It's providing fruit as, as well. Now... The, the fruit from the olive tree is going to be essential. It's the foundational piece to all this, and we get that. But let's not forget that he's saying there is a vineyard here. And this is a tree in the vineyard. Does that make sense? Let's not become so arrogant that we don't think that there isn't truth in other places. Now, what we have, and again, as, as Latter-day Saints, the truths of the, uh, the priesthood and the temple and redemption of the dead, and all, we have an incredible gift to the rest of the world, but they have things to teach us. They have fruit also. And if we're going to be so arrogant as to think we know it all, we're going to miss the gifts coming from the rest of the, the other fruits, right? We love olive oil, but you're going to pass up on the grapes? <laughs> I hope not. Okay. All right, so that, that's why I think it's so interesting that he's going to, the Savior's going to make it sure that they know I'm the God of the whole earth. I was slain for them as well as for you. And I'm going to need the fruit from the olive tree, but I also need the fruit from the vineyard. Okay, so. And then we're going to end up, so... But, but he is going to di differentiate. When we get to olive trees, we're now going to talk about the difference then between the tame or cultivated. This is from uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, kind of the public side of the Garden of Gethsemane. You can walk up and down those paths, kind of, kind of fun. But you can see these thousands-year-old trees that have just been cultivated over time. Uh, with, and they have massive root systems underneath there, okay? Uh, a, uh, a wild olive tree, uh, again, the leaves are smaller, the fruit is much more bitter, uh, they're shrubs. They, they really are, they'll just kind of grow anywhere and they're just not going to have nearly the root system. Um, and that, like I say, they'll just grow anywhere. In fact, I, uh, I, I, I was having so much fun doing this, I went on Amazon and bought a uh, olive tree for my office. <laughs> and it's just, it's just a, a small thing that I can sit in there. It's almost like a bonsai olive tree. Uh, and it's not going to look like that. 
It's going to be kind of a small little version of that guy. Not in my lifetime. You better be careful with what you dung it with. Yeah, when I start dunging it, the, the office will sound great. <laughs> yeah, you're worried about your office, are you? If, if I'm dunging in my office. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But they are two, they are two different, they are, they're both olive trees, but in a sense, they're two different species, in a sense. And if you're going to be doing any kind of grafting, in the old days, rabbis would have to, didn't like you really crossing species very much. And it's possible they might run, you might run afoul in your grafting process if you're going to cross over too far. I, I don't know if they would like tangelos, for instance, because you're not supposed to cross species, right? Okay, yeah. Usually they graft. That the wild ones are hardier. Yeah. They're just hardier. Because a lot of times they're in a hardier climate, right? right? Exactly. You did the sweet fruit, you graft it into the hardy tree. You do the same thing with peaches and apples and stuff, too. Yeah. Okay, well, let's hang on to that. Let's see what happens when we, when we get ready to graft. Um, okay, so I, I want to give you one other little kind of heads up here before we kind of look, dive into the text here. I looked online also, because we get this quote. Uh, the, uh, the master of the vineyard is going to have to come down because the tree is waxing old and began to decay. Thus the Lord will prune it and dig it about it and nourish it. That's the dunging thing. Right. Right. <laughs> that perhaps it may shoot forth young and tender branches. Okay. Now I found it interesting that in your care of your olive tree, the home guide online says root rot is caused by fungal organisms living in the soil. Because the roots are no longer feeding the tree, tree growth is stunted and foliage begins to be sparse. Okay. To check for root rot, what do you do? Remove the soil and expose the crowns and the root around the tree. So what are you doing? Digging, Digging around it. And part of what you're looking... Okay, so, so t tell, me, tell me the application here. What's the message being taught about Israel? Can you see it? You're going to get to the root of the problem. Thank you for that. Well, the people have become um, less fruitful spiritually speaking. Why had the people become less? Why were the branches more sparse? It's because their... their what, where was the problem was? Their spiritual roots, their experiences, and the experiences that had been brought forward from the past were diminishing. They were not as vibrant. Uh, yeah, how, how, how come? So when Israel went across the Jordan, uh, they were told basically kill everything and everyone. In other words, was, don't associate with, yeah. That was contrary. Yeah. So uh, they left some alone that were uh, supposedly benign, and, and they ran into some trouble with Midian because Midian, they were supposed to leave alone, but Midian decided they were a threat, and, and so they weren't benign. 
But uh, what they did was they ended up embracing the uh, organisms living in the soil. There you go. And, uh, and so they, they really were told, if they're not with you, get rid of them. So is the problem in the branches or is it in the root? It's in the root. And because the root had become bacteriaized, that, that had foreign bodies in it, uh, and so, what was the root for Israel? Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, they'd come from there. They were kind of root in there, but the root themselves, the thing that sustains the tree. So it seems to me that the roots were still there. It's just that the micro roots that yeah. there, there you go. Were rotted and no longer growing from the soil. So you've got the the leaders of the Jews, which are the roots. And they're no longer growing from the Lord. Yeah, and I, I would think, and I guess I take it a little one step farther than that. Uh, if the leaders are kind of they're draw, they're drawing on the root that the root itself, the theology, the belief system, had become watered down. They had allowed those other microorganisms to come in and begin to mess with the root. So, so how do you draw power from the root when? I mean, it would be like if we took our Doctrine and Covenants and let a variety of people just kind of throw extra stuff in there and then wonder maybe why it is the leaders are struggling a little bit because now we might have contradictory stuff. We're thinking maybe we should bring in from other religions and plop those in the middle of a revelation. So now we, it's, it's, being, it's being spread out, it's being confused. Some of which is inspired, some of which is not. There's the intermarrying thing. That was the and intermarrying would be, yeah. And I, but again, you're you're messing you're messing with the root system. You're, they were bringing in um, at the at the below the leadership. They were bringing in idol worship. Yeah, and so idol worship and and those kind of things was bringing in its own way of looking at things. And then the leadership was bringing in priestcraft. Yep. Yep. And so now the, now the root's messed up. And, be, and then it's no surprise that the branches are getting sparse. Okay? I know, for instance, that uh, with, with all due respect to our, uh, to our other Christian brothers and sisters out there, as they have churches that are kind of dying on them, they start trying to say, how, how, about, if we, uh, how, how about if we begin to... Uh, Turn the inside? Probably. Ah. I've mentioned that I heard a, a prominent preacher say they don't like it so much when I talk about repentance. <laughs> so I think I'll stop talking about repentance. <laughs> you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to water down and make this much more, you know, uh, we're going to go much more motivational speech kind of thing than we in kind of that negative stuff. Okay, and they just start to change it, and the root starts to rot. And, and because of that, the, the branches aren't being nourished like they were. Okay, so. This makes you think of Solomon and his wives, and he allowed them to worship as they pleased, and, uh, and then his sons. Yeah. His sons became rebellious. Solomon's probably a good example. Um, Okay, so with that said, so with that said have, have this in mind while we're trying to look, because here, here's what I don't want to do today with, with the allegory. 
So, many of the so much of the stuff that I see online or things that we have talked about in Gospel Doctrine year, every four years is all helpful and it's good stuff and we've heard it, I think. And you can, you're welcome to go get it. Which is, we're going to take the allegory and we're going to do it chronologically. So we're going to go through all the years and we can say this is where Israel fell and this is where Laman and this is where the Lehites take off and this is where they come back and that's all good stuff. And I, I think we've done that and I, and I invite you to find the online resources to do that again. I don't want to do that. I'm not, but I want you to see the background behind some of this because in the process of that sometimes in trying to get the chronological order on the vineyard, we're so intent on the timeline that we miss what the Lord is doing behind the timeline. Okay, Years ago when I was teaching Gospel Doctrine, my very, very first PowerPoint lesson ever in my life, I just bought PowerPoint, was Jacob 5. And I probably spent 20 hours learning how to do PowerPoint and the ability to animate it. So I had a tree and I would click on it and this little branch would come off over here and it would go over here and then this one would come over here. And, and as I'm moving things back and forth, my class is like, wow, <laughs> oh, you know, they just love all my animation. And it was so good. I still have that thing. Uh, but I was just like, let's show how all that works. And I missed the, and I, and I think even then I missed the, the bottom line lesson in this that I want to get to today. Okay? Yeah. So if we get all that timeline and stuff like that, then we don't have to worry about the scripture applying to us? Yes. Yeah, because we're so busy on the, on. It just applies to other people. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Like yes. Yes. And I don't have to take it personally. I just have to be more interested in the historical thing rather than the application. I can read it and not have to change. It's very cool. <laughs> okay. Other people can change. It applies to them. It just doesn't apply to me. Yeah. This is on a little different subject. It does, that's never stopped us before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is part of my field is biological science. But oh, cool. So I looked up the fungus that causes the root rot. Oh, you did? Good. And? Related to the mushroom and is edible. And the interesting thing about that is there are some mushrooms that are edible and some that are poisonous to us. Yeah. And so I got thinking that what corrupted the roots of that tree is part of the world that can, you know, that it can be consumed, right? Right. And that can be attractive, but can, it, if you're not careful, can be deadly to us as well. Oh, wow. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that we can add some of those some of those bacteria we might and might even sort of be delicious to the taste and very desirable. Mm -hmm. might, maybe who knows? All right, well, that's cool. All right, so so here's so so, so let me throw in one little piece of mystery here. Um, we get these indications, and I'm going to give you two indications today that the that Zenus's allegory was known anciently as it shows up in different places and there's going to be two specific ones we talk about one is Isaiah and the other one is Paul we think Paul had it as well in some in some form okay so here's here's kind of the history here's the the mystery of Isaiah so if we go back to Isaiah 
This is why we think that Zenos was prior to Isaiah. If I go to, I've hopped over to Isaiah 5. Look at what Isaiah is talking about. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it, gathered about the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, uh, and looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge for, and we're going to really hit this one. The Lord says, what could have been done more to my vineyard? that I have not done in it. Now, that's, there's a theme there that I think is important. I will go to, uh, when I looked, that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. I will go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And then his solution there was, I will take away the hedge, it shall be eaten up, break down the wall, and it shall be trodden down. Okay, which Jerusalem and Israel was a couple times, right? With a third one to come. Now, th this phrase though, what more could I have done? This gets repeated in the allegory at least three times. With, with growing worry and pain on the part of the owner of the vineyard. Now, to a certain extent, and, and I'm, I'm not going to ask now, I just want you to kind of put this somewhere, in the, just pin this in the back of your head. Isn't it interesting that an, an omnipotent God is doing things in his vineyard that do not work? That an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God is doing things to intervene in his vineyard and among his olive tree that do not work at first. Interesting. <laughs> and we say, well, he knows everything. Well, he, then he should know what to do so it won't happen. But it did anyway, because there's another variable there. Yeah. But he says, judge between me and my vineyard. That suggests that the vineyard has agency and yeah. responsibility. Yes, thank you. And that's where we're going to go. So there's going to be limit. The, the, the Lord of the vineyard can desire to do things, can put things in place, but the olive tree can say no. The vineyard can say no. And it's not God's fault. <laughs> but, he's going to, but what we'll watch, watch what he does in, the, in Jacob 5 when it doesn't work. He doesn't, in the case of this one, he goes, well, okay, all right, bring down the wall, start over. Okay? Well, no, Jacob 5 is going to be a little bit different. Um, but part of the, part of, I just want to show this to you because it's, it's interesting that there is a tradition out there that, that says this was known. And that what we're getting in Jacob 5 is a much fuller version of it. But it was certainly known at some level, I think, to Isaiah because the language is too close. And you could say, well, maybe Joseph Smith was borrowing on some of this as it was being translated, revealed, but, it's too, but Jacob 5 is too extensive. It's far more extensive. And it came from the same source. Yeah, and, and, and the common source is somewhere else, right? Okay, 
So, let's go back then to Jacob 5. Some of this we've kind of talked about a little bit. Uh, I'm going to liken the house of Israel. Tame olive tree which a man took and nourished in his vineyard and it began to wax old, begins to decay. We know that. I'm, I'm going to... Now it's interesting that Lord's going to do a number of things when this doesn't work. He's going to say, I'm going to prune it and dig about it and nourish it and he gets, a, he gets a little bit of success. It began to put forth somewhat, a little, what's the language? It wasn't like an overwhelming success. It worked a little. And it came to pass the master of the vineyard said, and it grieveth me. This is the first time he'll say it. He'll say it three more times. It grieveth me that I should lose this tree. Now, let me stop for a second. At the time of at the time of Joseph Smith, how did, for instance, uh, as he's growing up in town, and his and his his mom and Hiram and Sophronia and stuff are all joining the Presbyterian Church? It's right there on that corner in Palmyra. How did the Presbyterians view God? What was their view of God? Anybody know? Predestination. Predestination. They're Calvinists. Angry God. It's an angry God. It's a distant God. It's a God without body, parts, and passions. That's a direct quote from the from the Westminster Confession that they drew their their roots their roots were in the Westminster Confession, which is this is a God that it can be really angry if you're not obedient, doesn't have body parts or passions. No, no feelings, emotional. So what are they to do when people of that era start reading the Book of Mormon and they read about a God who says, I'm losing this fruit and it's grieving me. It, it hurts. I have personal pain because my tree is, being, is going astray. That goes, everything in this allegory is about a God who loves and cares and weeps. Over and over and over. And will do everything possible to save his tree. That's very cool. And it goes so counter to when the Book of Mormon shows up in 1830. It goes counter to almost everything out there. Other than the Methodists. The Methodists were out there in the woods having visions and stuff. And thinking maybe this is kind of cool. But they were looked down on. They weren't as culturally... Celebrated as the Presbyterians. Okay? Alright, so. It grieveth me that I should lose this tree. Therefore go and pluck the branches of a wild olive tree and bring them hither. Uh, and they're now going to graft them whithersoever I will. Um... I'm going to do this a little bit out of order. Uh, well, I've got it right here. Okay. So, so to give you a sense about what's, what's about to happen as he's intervening here, uh, I want to show you the other reference to this in the scriptures. We think Paul had some version 
far beyond just what he would have gotten from Isaiah. Paul has some version of this. So let's hop over for just a second to Romans 11. Because you, you really, really got to love this. What if, what if you could get... Uh, I'll, I'll just start to... Uh, it just made me laugh when I read it. Okay. Romans 11. Here's Paul. And Paul is writing to the Romans. So he's writing to the churches in Rome that at this point, remember, these little house churches, even in Rome, are going to be like, okay, we got a house church and here we've got the Jews... We've got the Greeks, we got the Romans, we got some slaves, you know, we got women, we got all these people that normally in society would be uh, spread out. Now we're going to get a house church and we're going to all teach them together. And what he kept saying to the Roman saints, to the, to the much chagrin of the Jews, was hey, when the Romans come in and accept Christ, they are heir to all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All that covenant stuff, they are participating in. And the Jews would go, let's get a stick and beat him. <laughs> let's throw rocks at him. Let's throw him out of town. Dang it, we are the covenant people, not the stinking Romans. They've already had everything already. Why should we now give them the covenant stuff? That's what makes us special. We're going to rely on our specialness. By the way, do you know that I've been, in my family, we've been in the church seven generations? You're pretty special. We are, am, I, am I pretty special? You're I am special. <laughs> so that means that I probably, uh, how many generations, Wendy, have you guys been in the church? Three? Two, I think. Well, I guess it's, well, with my kids, I guess it's three. So it's now three? Uh-huh. I know. I've been I, seven. I know. I'm just, I'm a slacker. I know. I know. My, 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 new, my new Joseph Smith, so. Yeah. Were you here for that hand cart? What's that? Were they hand cart Mormons? They were rescuing. We rescued. No, we weren't just hand cart Mormons. Oh. We were rescuing the hand carts. So you really can't teach me anything because I'm seven generations, right? <laughs> I can't learn anything new because I should be teaching you, <laughs> okay? Which is where they went, right? Okay, as Jews, we understand this, so we're going to understand the gospel more. You're, you're Greek. What? <laughs> You've been worshiping Julius Caesar for years. What do you know? And, and this is kind of what you're referring to, too. It talks about later how they put it in a poor spot of ground. And the stuff put in the poor spot of ground does what? Well. It does great. And I'm always wondering, and I've seen that in life. You can see it all around you. And I wonder why in human nature does the stuff in the poor spot of ground do well and the stuff in the good spot of ground not do well? I, I had a return missionary tell me the other day he was having a really good mission and then they put him in a really bad area. And, oh, sorry. And he said, it was the rich area. <laughs> he said, the, the mission work just falls apart at that point because the rich people aren't going to listen. Okay? Well, you kind of get... But in some cases, I remember in Manchester, England, knocking on... You know, you should know. You can knock on the door and the masseuse is right there. And you go, okay, here we go. And, and we tried all those little tricks. It's like, 
Hey, you from Judah? We're from Joseph. <laughs> that ain't working. Let's get, we're, we're, what's your tribe? Let me tell you about my tribe. <laughs> They're not buying it, okay? Okay, so, so that's, that's the atmosphere in which Paul is trying to set up these churches. But look at what he says to the Romans. It's just golden, man. He says uh, in 11, or 16, if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, oh, the root, yeah, we know that one. So are the branches. Now, I love this. 17, if some of the branches be broken off, Jews, and thou being a wild olive tree, meaning Gentiles, Romans, Greek, right, right? If you're a wild olive tree and you weren't grafted in among them, so he's talking to the wild branches, which is just hilarious, and with them partakest of the root, cool, and which in this case turns out the root is, is the covenant of Abraham, but the, the root is also Jesus Christ. You got, we just got to get the right root here, okay? So the root is actually Jesus Christ, and with them partaketh of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. You get the blessings of all of that. <laughs> Look at 18. Boast not against the branches. <laughs> you don't picture when the wild branches get grafted into the tree that they're boasting to the, to the natural ones. But they are. You guys got kicked out because you weren't believing. That's why you had to bring us in here. Like, nanny, nanny, boo boo. <laughs> you know? You've been doing this all this time, and now we're joining, and we're kind of a little better off than you. And, and you know why it is that he needed to, to uh, graft us in? Because you guys were screwing up. <laughs> you know, the wild branches are talking smack to the tame branches. Imagine that. So he goes, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou, thou bearest not the root, but the root, the, the root is sustaining you. You're not sustaining the root. Well, yeah. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Do you see it? Okay. And he goes, well, wild guys, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And at the moment, you're here because of faith. You chose to be grafted in. Important point. You chose to be grafted in. Uh, because of unbelief, verse 20. They were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Don't get all into yourself. Don't be high-minded. You better fear. For if God spared not the natural branches... Take heed lest he not spare, he spare not thee as well. In other words, yes, they were broken up based on their unbelief, and it could happen to you. Isn't it great? You just get this setting of saying, anytime that that the the root the branches are trying to take credit for the root, it was about me. I'm an amazing branch. And I'm more important than the root. 
I know more than my leaders. <laughs> I know more than the other people. Did you go to BYU? I did. <laughs> I graduated from seminary, did you? I served a mission. I'm sorry you didn't. Isn't that kind of the same thing as father and mother? I know more than, but at a certain point, you know, when you're 8, 17, 18, don't you know more than your parents? They get stupider by the minute. Yeah, well, that's when you're, a, oh, you're kind of a wild branch. You are a wild branch. We are, the, we are the smartest. Every generation says it's like, we're the smartest generation that's ever existed on the face of the planet, and everybody else is stupid. And my teacher may say something, but my 14-year-old friend knows more. So I'm going to listen to my 14-year-old friend more than I'm going to listen to the teacher. Okay, well, uh, I think you're kind of getting that same vibe here about uh, Paul is trying to say, yes, you're here, but don't assume, because there would be a natural arrogance among the Romans that they were better than the Jews, and there's certainly a more natural, a natural arrogance among the Jews that they would know more than the Romans. And then trying to pull them together in a little house church is a lot of fun. <laughs> we'll put the Republicans on this side and the Democrats on this side, and then, and then we're going to decide how we move forward from here. That'll be good, won't it? <laughs> Mor moral degenerate, <laughs> Neanderthals. <laughs> and they'll go back and forth, okay? So, um, Anyway, I just think it's interesting two things. There's a great lesson being taught by how the wild branches are handling the grafting. But also you get a sense that Paul was also aware of, of this allegory at some level. We just don't know how much. Because it's, cer it's certainly there. Okay? Yeah. No, I, I, I'm just scratching my head, but I was Yeah, I wonder what I wonder what I was thinking there. Let's find out. Yeah, it doesn't really fit, does it? Sometimes when I'm putting these little cross notes in here, it meant something to me at the time. But okay. All right. So back to Jacob five. It's reminiscent of the parable, you know, of the wages where they got paid the same at the end of the day as those that worked all day. Yeah, in, in a vineyard, you've got, the Savior is putting out there that says there are those that, are, that were there from the beginning. Um, it, it is interesting, you bring up an interesting point. Uh, we have a couple of instances in the Savior's teaching. One is... Uh, these workers in the vineyard that start at 6 a.m. and they work all day and they're resentful with the, with the 4 and 5 o'clockers that didn't work all day and they shouldn't get the same wage as me. And it's the same, they're really the same attitude as the older son and the prodigal son. Yes. That I've been here all along and the younger son is, is somehow being celebrated we don't know exactly what all that looks like going forward, but certainly at the moment, I didn't get, I haven't got the party he got. And there's almost an, a feeling of resentment. And, and sometimes in, in, in teaching settings, when I've suggested that there might be a few more saved in the celestial kingdom, maybe, than we maybe originally thought, that there, he might be more generous. It's like, 
No, 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 no. Those guys in the telestial kingdom, they should get theirs. There's a sense of, and we have to be really careful. And part of what we're getting with this is the, the Lord is more generous than we want to give him credit for. And he kind of knows what he's doing. Okay? Yeah. So in both of those examples, the, uh, the laborers in the field and, and uh, the prodigal son, uh, it's uh, the kingdom of heaven is light. And it's not. Because in the prodigal son, the good son is a savior and he's not unhappy for us to come back. Yeah, he's, he's extremely. Uh, maybe in mortality, the laborers who started at 6 a.m. Are, are distressed, but I can't imagine anybody in the celestial kingdom that's going to look and see someone who right. barely made it in right. think, oh, you don't deserve to be here. Right, and, and it, just, it just doesn't feel like that's what the celestial kingdom would be about. Anybody that's in there is just. That, that anybody that should be grateful. Um, I, I was talking to a young man just yesterday, um, and and again, in, in in the YSA, these guys just like invite their buddies from college or something, and they just keep showing up. He said, "Well, this is my this is." I mean, he was from India, and this was his first time in church. And he said, "They just said come, so here he is, and he's just." All right, and, and the missionaries hadn't met him. He, he'd been invited by one of the other kids in the YSA, and he just shows up, and he's there, and, it's, and he kind of liked what he was hearing, and this is all good. And then we had, we had a birthday party, and we broke out the cake, and he was enjoying the cake. But you know what? As I watched him interact with, with everybody else, there was like no jealousy about saying, we know more than you. Just like, man, we're glad to have you here. We're going to love on you. And he, his t- and, and he told me as I'm leaving, it's like, oh, I'll be back. Good. Come on back, man. This is, this is the place to be. But, uh, but I, I want to I kind of come back to this idea then. That all the way through, I think sometimes in our trying to get the chronological order and what does this mean, we get so bogged down in the literal parts of, of this allegory that we keep missing the tone coming from the Lord all the way through. And it came to pass, verse 15, that a long time had passed, the Lord of the vineyard said to his servant, come and look at what he does. I set it up. It's not working well. They're, they're making choices. Other, and you're like, well, he would have known that they would have made other choices. Yeah, but he had to give them that opportunity to make those choices. So he's doing it and it ain't working. So they're going to try something different. And look at what he says. Come, let who go down? Us. Let us go down into the vineyard that we might labor in the vineyard. So in other words, what is he saying about how he then goes about trying to reclaim the tree? How does the Lord work? It takes more than just one person. It's, it's more than just one person. But he's personally involved in this. It isn't like he just go do your thing. This is kind of an indication of maybe what we will be doing in heaven. Yeah, yes. That that there's a sense um, of we need to be involved. And he's going to say, I will work with my servants because I'll be there in the midst of them. Remember, that's part of what Paul at Mars Hill was trying to push back against the Stoics 
and, and the Epicureans because they were like, now God's way up there. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't get his hands dirty in the Either go party, Epicureans, or Stoics. Make sure you kind of obey everything. But in either case, God is so distant. And to a certain extent, the Calvinists uh, uh, kind of went back to that as well. God is distant. And what we keep seeing in this allegory is a God that's involved. Personally, he's going to send servants. The servant will call other servants. The prophets will call other people as we get to like verse 77, which I think is like the last days part of this. They all get involved. But all the way through that, the owner's in the middle of it, which I think is very cool. Okay? Don't forget just how personally he wants to be involved in all of this. Okay? Uh, let's see. We got. Okay. All right. So. Comments on this? I'm trying to think of how much I wanted more. Through. Yeah. Uh, our two missions were in South Africa and in Fiji. And when I was in Fiji, the uh, there was a the Fijians decided to hook up with the uh, British and. Uh, so when the, the um, UN interfered at, or gave the Fijians back Fiji, right? Why the uh, the they didn't account for the fact that they had brought in forty-five percent of the population. <laughs> from India. And so uh, many of the Indians had joined the church and so there was this young man that was getting ready to go on a mission and uh, he was complaining because the Indians still could not own property in Fiji because when they the United Nations forced British, British to give it up. Give it up. They didn't account for the for, the, for those people are there as well. Yeah, they had brought in, and I said, oh, "Well, uh, how is that?" And he said, "I said." Do you have that problem in the church? Oh, no. He said, the church people are fine. They accept us and we work with them. And I'm going on a mission. But it's the Fijians that I, we can't deal with. So, so, sometimes those old trees have a really hard time. And it's based on, think about the Lamanites. Think about the old Lamanite generations that had a root system that, was, that had been filled with bacteria from their fathers. And so they believed a certain way. Um, now, the, the, the one last thing that I want to point out, and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here. You know, in fact, it's in, let me go back to, I missed it in, in, uh, with Paul. Paul puts it better than I can. Is this still in five for chapter five? Yeah. Okay. We're, we're at Romans eleven. Back to Romans eleven. So here's going to be his. 
here's going to be his, his kind of statement on this. Verse 23. And, and he's talking about, okay, the, the other olive, the, the, those tame branches, the Jews, if they abide, still not an unbelief. In other words, they start to believe. It's a double negative. If they start to believe, they're going to be grafted in. They're coming back. The whole goal of this question of, I have scattered Israel, but I'm going to bring it home. They will become, that Jesus will be their foundation. 24, but if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and then li listen to this wording, as very, and this is someone from that environment, right? And were grafted contrary to nature. Well, even more than that, not just repentance. If I have, if I have a golden, delicious tree, and I take a branch of Granny Smith and I graft it into a golden, delicious tree, what fruit is coming out of that? Granny Smith. Yeah. Right. The only way that the tree, the only way that the, of a different species or a different nature is going to be changed by being grafted into this tree, he says it will be contrary to nature. Meaning what? It's changed. It's being transformed. That's how it works. In other words, if we take somebody and we who has been Indian all of his life and we graft him into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, does it come out Hindu? No, it comes out Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Why? Because there's a change. It's contrary to nature. Wild branches can't produce tame fruit unless the Lord is involved. A change has occurred. That's, that's what he's saying. And he'll, he'll say it again. Uh, Thou art grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree. How much shall these that are the natural branches be grafted into their own tree? I wouldn't, don't be ignorant of this mystery, he says. Lest you be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is what happened to Israel. And you're being changed. Now you, th but they're coming back. Blindness is what happened to Israel. And someone who's blind with a miracle can be made to see. How does, this, how does these people that rejected the stone come to accept Jesus? He says, blindness in part is what happened to Israel. Until, be scary about this one, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's a whole other lesson. That a, that a point that the Gentiles have had a full chance to hear the gospel. I'm not saying any of that's not true, but wouldn't the Indian that is from the Hindi religion, wouldn't he um, bring all the good from he would. that he's learned growing up and add it, well, the gospel would be added to that to make yeah. more yeah. truth? And yeah, in other words, they, they, were, they do have some juice to them and they have some yeah. belief to them. Right. They, they were just blind. And so now they're going to be taught and they're going to produce fruit that is consistent over here, even though they have their own individual approach. That blindness in part is what happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so, here's his conclusion, 
All Israel shall be saved. All Israel shall be saved. At some point, the blindness is, is addressed. In this life or the next, somewhere the blindness is addressed. And he's going, and so Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them. When I, when I shall take away their sins. Yeah. Okay. I'd just like to <clears throat> clarify, I think, if anybody else feels the same as me, that when Paul says it's contrary to nature, that that has a negative sound. Okay? But I don't think that that's the way that it is. I think what he means by that, unless something happens, unless there's some action that's taken, those wild trees will always be wild because it's contrary yeah. to nature for them to be anything else. That's right. Unless a miracle has occurred. Something that's right. That's contrary to what has always been for them. It's true. They can't change for and, and, and that contrary to nature is resolved by the atonement. Mm -hmm. The atonement is the transforming change that changes their nature. Because that's what we're after. We're after a change of nature, not just a change of behavior. Yeah. So, lest we go too far overboard in our expectation of all Israel being saved. I think that's kind of a play on words because Israel is those who have taken the Lord for their master. Whether they started out as Gentiles yep. Yep. or the house of Israel. Yeah, because our nature had been changed whether you started off wild or tame. And, that's right. And those who were of the house of Israel who have rejected the Lord as their master are no longer Israel. Until he brings them back. Well, Until he brings them back. That's what he's saying. Unless, unless he brings them back. That doesn't happen as long as they have rejected him. They must accept him. Yeah. In this world, that's right, or in this world or the next, they're going to have every opportunity to do that. They'll still have their free agency. They can choose to do it or not. But they're going to have every opportunity to be brought back. So they're foreordained to come back, but they are not predestined to come back. No, they're not predestined to come back. That's but he's going, to say, he's going to save Israel. But watch what happens when, when we turn the Savior loose to help unblind people. He usually does, contrary to nature, eyeballs aren't supposed to start seeing again, and then they do. The lame aren't supposed to walk again, and then they do. Okay? If someone is willing to come to the Savior and be unlamed, is that... Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> Pro-walking. <laughs> so, anyway... I just think that what he's saying is, is that there's a work of salvation going on. We're involved in it. The Savior is involved in it. The Father is involved in it. And he will call other servants to help him reclaim all that will. And, it will be, and the idea is not just to, for us to be left with the same nature. It's to be changed. And be transformed. And it will be a miracle. And that miracle is the atonement. And the temple plays a big role. Oh, the temple is, is the key, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all comes together. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So, all right. Fun stuff. Plenty to think about? Great. All right. I bear you my testimony that the, we, we worship the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth. And that is his intent to provide salvation for all that will. 
uh, and that that and that he doesn't he doesn't give up. He keeps in there. He weeps when we struggle. He loves us, uh, and will do everything possible. We will be given every opportunity. Uh, and this is his work, and it's fun to be part of that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our dear, kind Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity we've had to 